God set a strong desire in the hearts of men and women long ago for a Savior. Thousands of years ago, God set this desire on man's heart by proclaiming a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we heard of this promise two weeks ago as Josh preached us through the promises of God and traced a, a brief um, survey of some of the promises that God made from Genesis 3.15 forward to the day of Christ. Everyone wants a Savior. Everyone wants salvation. Everyone. I'm just going to say that many do not understand what they need to be saved from. Everybody has this longing for peace. But they don't understand, many don't understand that the peace that they need is with God, their maker. Many turn to the wrong things for peace. They don't turn to Emmanuel, who we just sung of. This has been going on since Genesis 3.15 to now. God said this in Genesis 3.15, after man had disobeyed him and and eaten from the tree that he forbidden them to eat from, he says in cursing the serpent that tempted Eve, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heal. That set in motion a longing that even you and I experience to this day. We want that serpent's head crushed. We want an offspring from the woman to cure all that ails us physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And last Sunday, we got a clear wake-up call from Ephesians chapter 2 We need to urgently understand our need for salvation. We do not need to be apathetic. We don't need to be complacent. The need is urgent. And as we heard two Sundays ago and last Sunday, the need was met. And so we should rejoice as we just sang. Yes, there's been a long history of people longing for salvation God set it forth in the promise in Genesis 3.15, and that was a shout, although it was veiled a little bit, that was a shout that has echoed off the walls of time ever since. This promise. It was echoed again through the mouth of Moses 1,500 years before Christ came, where he echoes what was promised, that there would be a prophet, that there would be a lamb that would come, that would be used to bring forgiveness and salvation to his people. Then God used a prophet named Samuel who ushered in the kingdom of David. And David prophesied a thousand years before Jesus came that there would be one who would sit on the throne forever. We go to Isaiah 700 years before Jesus' reign. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Micah and Haggai and Zechariah. And 400 years before Jesus Christ came, we hear from Malachi. That there would be one that would come. Moses spoke years ago. And Jesus 
Over in John chapter 6, Jesus says this, If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me long ago, 1,500 years earlier. Uh, I love what Jesus says over in Luke 24, verse 27, when he meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He begins with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Those two disciples were mourning because their Savior, the one they thought would save them, was dead. They didn't yet believe in the resurrection. So there's been this longing from Genesis 3.15 all the way forward to the time of Christ. And I would say to you today that there's a longing even today for rightness with God. The last of the Old Testament prophets is the one that we're going to look at this morning. And it's not Malachi. His name is John. John the Baptist. He is the last. Of the Old Testament prophets who prophesied God's promise of a coming Messiah. And he was there to actually see the prophecy fulfilled. And so Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, calls John the most blessed and the, and the best of the prophets. Only because what he proclaimed, he experienced and he saw and he tasted. Now I want us to trace through the background of John the Baptist. And so if you will, we're going to do a couple of verses Before we land in one spot and stay there the rest of the morning, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40 with me. And let's pick up in verse 3. This is Isaiah. He is writing, he is prophesying at a time when Israel is captive. They are in Babylonian captivity and they are longing to be freed from this bondage that they're in. And in Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5. Here's what God inspired Isaiah to record for us. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a look at that for a moment and break down just a few key phrases. We can't unpack all of that this morning, but what do we hear first of all? We, we hear that there's going to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, and a voice goes with a human And this human, we will discover, will be ultimately John the Baptist. There's a message that this voice proclaims in this wilderness. I want you to picture what a wilderness is. It's a desert. It's a desolate place. There's isolation that's happening there. There's alienation. And ultimately, the desert, the alienation that they're experiencing is that of their relationship with God, their Father, their Maker. And the message is, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a highway. A highway. This is language we understand. We want to get on I-20 to go somewhere far and fast. Not on County Road 205. Sometimes we want the scenic route. But when we've got somewhere to go quick and we want it easy, we get on highways. There's a highway here that is going to be prepared for the Lord to travel upon. And Why? Well, there's deep valleys. There's high mountains. 
Okay, there's uneven ground. There's rough trails. And these things need to be smoothed out. You know, this is something that we experience today. We are captive before Christ, before we profess faith in Christ. We are in bondage like the Israelites of this day were in Babylonian captivity. Our bondage is in that of sin. We're handcuffed. No one does good. No, not even one, Paul writes. And so we long for these valleys to be lifted up to meet where the mountains are brought down. We're looking for this smooth plain that we can travel on because the life without that is rough and rugged. And listen to the certainty in verse 5 that, that Isaiah writes of. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Certainty. In this language that Isaiah is using. And so we see in John 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. The highways were built. The valleys were raised up and the mountains were brought down. And the plain was made smooth. And the Lord tread upon it. We move forward. That was 700 years before Christ came. Now move forward 300 more years. Let's go to the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. This is the next moment that we see John the Baptist foretold in the Bible. And in Malachi chapter 3, again 400 years before Christ comes, we read in verse 1 this. Behold... I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in Isaiah 40, we have a voice. In Malachi 3, we have a messenger. Getting a little more clarity here now. And look at the certainty that Malachi prophesies with. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. No doubt about it. Bank on it, Israel. Turn one page over to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We get a little more clarity. He was a voice in the wilderness in Isaiah. He was a messenger in Malachi 3. Now in Malachi 4, he is Elijah the prophet. He's getting the name now. And look at the certainty. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. What happens next? Next, we get 400 years of silence. The time between the Testaments. For 400 years, God dims His voice, His light. 
There's no inspired Scripture given. And during that time, people had the Old Testament and they combed over it and they pleaded with God to deliver on His promise. And then we move to the New Testament and the silence is broken. It's broken in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We could look at all of them to see where the silence is broken, but I want us to look at the Luke version. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 13. 400 years have gone by. People have retained this promise, but they've not seen any advancement on it whatsoever. No echoes bouncing off of the walls of time for 400 years. No new addition to the prophecy until we get to Luke Chapter 1, and there's this man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. Comes from the line of Aaron. And on a particular day, Zechariah, by lot, they drew lots to see who would go into the temple to prepare and to to offer incense before the Lord. And Zechariah's lot was chosen. And he goes in, and that's where we pick up in verse 13 of Luke chapter 1. The angel said to him, An angel has appeared, he's terrified. An angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will, and listen to this, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord A people prepared. The silence is broken. Zechariah is so blessed because as a priest, he is encountered by this angel who says, hey, it's time to pick up on that prophecy, on that promise of an offspring of the woman. And I'm going to give you a son, your wife a son. And he's going to be that voice in the wilderness. He's going to be the messenger. He's going to be the one like Elijah who is going to proclaim the way of the Lord is upon us. And then we turn and we see throughout the Gospels that this this one that was promised to Zechariah, John the Baptist, we see that he came. John 1, 6 through 8 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It's John the Baptist. And then we go to Luke. Turn over to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Listen to this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconite, uh Help me, Trachonitis and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. Abilene, I can say. That's a good one from there. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's exactly what we hear in Isaiah 40, is it not? So he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. He did. He proclaimed exactly right here what Isaiah said he would in Isaiah 40. And then we have this mission accomplished in John 3, 29, because when John the Baptist has discovered the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he points him out to his disciples and says, there he is, and his disciples leave him. And now Jesus and his teams baptizing more than John the Baptist is. And a couple of John the Baptist's guys say, hey man, we've got competition and they're winning over there. They're baptizing more than we are. And what does John the Baptist say? He says, now is my joy complete. And then he says the most, the second most significant sentence John the Baptist has ever recorded as saying. The first is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no bigger sentence than that, Right? But the second is, he must increase, but I must decrease. Mission accomplished, right? John the Baptist has seen the Christ, has pointed him out, is now seeing Christ take over, and he is baptizing, his team is baptizing more than him. And John is saying, he's got to increase and I've got to decrease my youthfulness. Is coming to a completion. I have fulfilled what I was called to do. And now my joy is complete. Yet something happens. And here's where we're going to camp out for this morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. And we'll be there for the rest of the morning. Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist. His joy is complete. He must decrease, Christ must increase, and he kind of falls off the radar screen. But we pick up again in Matthew 11, starting in verses 1 through 6. And before I go there, let me just kind of set the table here. There are times when we have expectations. And and let me give you simple examples. Do you ever talk to somebody on the phone that you've never met and you hear this voice and you create this mental image of who you're talking to? Okay, I did that when I was early in my career. I I worked for a finance company. I traveled extensively and I had relationships with managers of branch offices around the country on the phone. We'd never met. And then something would happen and I'd have to fly out to their branch. And when I would walk in and say, hi, I'm Edward Heinze, I would hear more often than not. Man, you don't look anything like what I pictured. I, I, I thought you were going to have gray hair by the sound of your voice. I thought you were going to be much larger. I heard all kinds of things. I never met the mental image. And you know what that's like when you talk to someone on the phone. When you finally meet him, you're going, man, you, you don't look like what I thought. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. 
Here's another one from, from that time in my life. I, I had an occasion where I was going to Great Falls, Montana. Okay, and I'm a Lewis and Clark fiend. I love everything there is about Lewis and Clark and discovering the Pacific Ocean. Great Falls, Montana is a significant place in their history. They had to take all their boats out and portage around these great giant waterfalls to get up land to then get back into the, to the river, the Missouri, to keep on going. And so I've got this mental image of Great Falls, Montana, gigantic falls, mountains everywhere, and just, and I get there, and it is the flattest, it's flatter than the Panhandle of Texas. And these falls, they're great, they're probably 120 feet, but it's just because there's like some cap rock that they come off of. And what did they do? They encased it in concrete, and there's chain link fences running across it so people won't get on it. I was so disappointed. We create mental images of people and of places. And when we actually get there, they don't match up with what we expected them to be. That happened to John the Baptist. Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison... About the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Things have not gone well for John the Baptist, it seems. There's a real obscure verse in Matthew 4, verse 12, where it says, Jesus learned that John had been put in prison and he went to Galilee. It's all we know up to this point. So we know that John from from Matthew 4 is in prison. And here we know that he's in prison and he's heard about the deeds of Christ. And he sends some disciples of his to go to Jesus to inquire of him. So things have not gone well for John. In fact, if, if we skipped over to Matthew 14, just listen to this in verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So he's persecuted for this. And he's thrown in prison. So while he's in prison, he's hearing of all these things that Jesus is doing. And he has this moment of doubt. And there's two things that I want us to observe from John here in this Matthew passage. The first thing that I want us to observe is that there is absolutely evident in John a strong desire for the promise of the Messiah to be fulfilled. It has not wavered. There is an ache. There is a groaning. Is this Messiah guy? Is he true? Is he real? Did I get this right? Because he says this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Some observations here. Number one, John is still leaning on the Old Testament promises of a Messiah. He's not chucked that out the window and said, forget all that. I'm in prison. There's no such thing. No, he's saying, I'm still living life, anticipating this promise to be fulfilled. 
We also see that He has not forsaken them. We see that He is confused by the circumstances of His life. And He's saying, maybe I missed it. Should I look for another? Was it not Him after all? I'm still believing He's coming, but maybe He's not the one. Because this does not look like what I expected. The second thing I want us to observe is that doubt can creep into the strongest of saints, into the strongest of Christians. Doubt can creep in with life's difficulties. And it can wreak havoc with us. We're a lot like John the Baptist. We're cut out of the same cloth. We've got the same spiritual DNA that John has. John is struggling with doubts about the reality of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's heard about the deeds of Christ. He's he's heard about Jesus' teaching. He's heard about His miracles. And if anything, these should have solidified his faith. But when he looked at his personal circumstances, imprisonment for defending the truth of what Christ would have him to proclaim, you can't have your brother's wife. He starts to doubt. He's in a deep valley. He looks up and there's a jagged peak. The way is not smooth and straight. It's rough. And he thought that he would be walking upon plains. This isn't what he thought it was going to be like. This doesn't feel like what he prophesied in Matthew three eleven. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's looking for that. Wheat and chaff being gathered over here and being burned over there. Instead, he feels like chaff in prison. Doesn't fit what he was wired to believe and to envision when he was given his calling. John is falling right into the mentality of all the Jewish people that he lived with at that time. The Jewish people of that time were expecting a a political military king to ride in on a white horse and to take care of business. Instead, he rode in on a donkey and he got hung and crucified. People were confused by this king and the manifestation of this king in their midst. They expected a warrior king. The timing was off because we're going to get the warrior king, but at the first coming, he's the servant king. They expected an earthly king who would give them free food and no taxes. Remember he fed 5,000? 5,000 men. How many women and children were there? He filled up American Airlines Arena with people and fed them with just a few loaves and a few fish. And the people, the Israelites, the Jewish people of that time were expecting free food from this Messiah King that's going to take care of all that ails us. 
And yet we see that them and John are still persecuted for their holding on to this promise of a Messiah. So John experienced, no doubt about it, real doubt, real uncertainty, because Jesus was so unlike what he mentally envisioned and expected. You may ask, how in the world could John the Baptist do this? Of all people, how could John the Baptist doubt? How could he say, are you the one or should we look for another? I mean, after all, let's take an inventory of John's life. When he's in his mother Elizabeth's womb and Mary comes into his presence, he does a flip. Elizabeth feels it. He somersaults because he's in the presence of the Messiah who's in Mary's womb. When he's, <clears throat> when he's with his disciples at the Jordan baptizing people, he says when he sets eyes on Jesus Christ, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at him. There he is. And he's not saddened or angered when his disciples leave him in the dust and follow that Lamb of God. He's at uh, the Jordan, and here comes this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says, I need you to baptize me. And he says, what? What? You want me to baptize you? You must baptize me. He knows who he's talking to. When he does this baptism, the heavens open and the, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and he sees this and he hears this voice say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He witnesses this. He experiences this. And I've already shared with you that he says at the, at the full realization of who Jesus is and at the appeal of his disciples that are following him, he must increase, I must decrease. How do we go from that to, are you the one or should we look for another? He's flesh, doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet. He's a fallen man. And as I weighed this this week, I'm going to say to you that perhaps, eh, not perhaps, I'm going to say to you, we are just like John the Baptist. We are prone to look at the circumstances in our life and be confused for a moment. I'm assuming as I speak to Christians in this room right now that you have surrendered your life to Christ. You have, in essence, said, He must increase, I must decrease. And yet in this decreasing, there is hardship that comes. And it is confusing to us sometimes. Very, very confusing. We can have our health struck with a surprise test result that totally startles us and sets us on a course that we never planned that we would go down. 
We can experience the effects of aging and start to realize, I, I never planned on this happening. I thought that when I professed Christ as my Lord and Savior and He increased and I decreased, I thought there was going to be smooth plains and no valleys and no mountains and no rough spots and no crooked. I thought it was going to be straight and smooth. I thought it was going to be on the highway of Jesus Christ. But every one of us in this room knows that that's not the experience of life. Aging, health shocks. We can be in the midst of marital strife or or family conflict. That we can say, when I surrendered to Christ, I didn't think this was going to be part of the package. Financial uncertainty. Employment loss. Or how about this? Persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. And there's these moments when we experience these unexpected things that we did not have in our formula for life as a Christian. That in that moment we can say, is is Christianity real? Is, Is Jesus, did he really come? Is he a real historical figure? Is he really reigning right now? Do, did I really believe in him or did I believe in a, in a church and some people and I, and I misplaced my belief and they're kind of confused and I, we, we have these moments. And John the Baptist in that moment, he sent messengers to Jesus to inquire. Well, we can send messengers to Jesus. We just do it a little different. It's called prayer. And in our moments when we're struggling with all these issues in life that didn't look like, don't look like what we planned Christianity to be, we can inquire of Him. Go on our knees in our closet and we pray to our Father in secret. And our Father who hears in secret will reward us with answers. So you and I, we know John the Baptist all too well. All too well. And I urge you, inquire of him. Don't just sit there miserable. Inquire. And you will get good news if you seek him earnestly with all your heart. So watch what happens. Jesus hears this and, and he responds. I, I'm so thankful for Christ's response here. Because he doesn't whip John the Baptist, he doesn't insult him. He graciously grants him assurance. Oh, yes. Look at what he says in verse 4 of chapter 11 of Matthew. And Jesus answered them, You go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus knows, John knows the Old Testament. And every one of these was prophesied about in the Old Testament, most of them in the book of Isaiah. The blind receive their sight is Isaiah 61. The lame walk, Isaiah 35. The lepers are cleansed, 2 Kings 5. The deaf hear, Isaiah 29. The dead are raised, Isaiah 26. The good news is preached to the poor, specifically Isaiah 61.1. 1. 
So Jesus encourages John the Baptist with Scripture. Scripture is sufficient for all things. Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness with Scripture. He encourages John with Scripture. And I want you to know that in these weak moments where we're in deep valleys or we're on jagged peaks and the road is narrow and craggy and hard to traverse and you're wanting that smooth highway on the plain, if you inquire of Christ, He will respond in His Word and comfort you. So Jesus doesn't rebuke John through His messengers. He encourages John. And then I want you to see what He does in the rest of chapter 11. Look down in verse 9. What then? He's speaking to the crowds. I'm assuming the messengers have left or they're about to leave. And now he turns to the crowd and he said, What then did you go out to see, people? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And he's speaking of John the Baptist. And he quotes right here the Old Testament prophecies. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, very key verse here, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So John doubts. John inquires. Jesus encourages him by responding with, Hey, John, you know the prophecies. I fulfilled them. And then he turns to the crowds and he doesn't mock John. He's not down on John. He just doesn't remain silent about John. He says to the people, There has been no one born of a woman greater than than he. So I want you to know, Christian, our Christ sympathizes with us. He understands that we live in fallen flesh and that we can't rightly perceive everything that's going on and all the the multitude of things that he's working out in all of our trials and tribulations. I had breakfast yesterday morning with a guy who's been through some stuff. And I told him just that. There, there are a thousand things that are going on in your trial that Christ is orchestrating to build His kingdom in other people's lives. And if you look at your hardship that you're in, in the moment, whatever that may be, you just draw some circles out to see how many people will fall into the influence of your trial. You've got a spouse, some kids, some parents, some coworkers, some church members. Next thing you know, you're easily at 20 or 30 people that are within the circle of influence of your trial. And they're watching you to see if you might inquire like John the Baptist did of Christ. And they're watching to see a response. And this is how Christ builds his saints up, but also builds his kingdom out. And so Jesus here says, He is the greatest of those born among women. He's not a weakling. He sympathizes with him and says, I understand, because he lives in a fallen world. Now, why is John the greatest? I said it to begin with. John is the greatest because he is the prophet who proclaimed the coming of Christ and actually saw it and experienced it. 
There's no greater prophet than the one that, who actually gets to realize what he has prophesied about. And so this John, Jesus says, is the one of whom Isaiah wrote about and Malachi wrote about. In fact, he goes on to say, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Straight out of Malachi chapter 4. He who has ears, let him hear. So here we sit, two Sundays before the day that we celebrate the fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. And we see that God made promises long ago through Moses and David and Isaiah and Malachi and John the Baptist. These promises were made and these promises were absolutely fulfilled. And John the Baptist was a promise within a promise to prepare the way for Christ to come. And even this prophet who saw, struggled with the circumstances of life to see clearly and fully what he knew to be true. And so I want to urge us to embrace this truth. Everybody turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 2. Starting in verse 8. We'll end with this. I urge you, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, as we wait for the second advent of Christ, to do what Paul instructed Timothy to do. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. He's exactly like John the Baptist at this moment, is he not? He's bound with chains and he's a criminal. And I, look, I love what he says next. But the word of God is not bound. The promise of God is not bound. It is flowing it is free and it will be fulfilled when God deems it appropriate. And then he says this, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Christ cannot deny himself because he really did come. He really is real. He really is sovereign. He really is reigning. He really is at the right hand of God the Father. He really is coming again. And all the promises of his first coming were fulfilled. And therefore, based on that, we can say with certainty... His final promise will be fulfilled. In due time was God sees it fit. So no matter what you are experiencing this Christmas, I want you to know that Christ fulfilled all the promises of God. And because this is true, when you have your doubts, you pray to Him like John did. You pray to Him to remind you Christmas did happen. We do celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have, in all of your wisdom and in all of your kindness, given us the account of John the Baptist and his doubt. And Father, if there was anyone that shouldn't doubt, it's John. Father, we can so identify with him. I have this very weak, Lord, this very weak, I have taken my eyes off the absolute truth to the fulfillment of the promised Christ and I have been so caught up in my immediate circumstances that momentarily it was as as if I had to say, were you the one or should I look for another? Lord, I know these in this room have had moments just like that. And I pray that you would continue to answer us graciously with Scripture. Father, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We we sing, He came, He came. But we do sing, would He come again? We're ready for Him to come again. To raise these valleys up and to bring these mountains down and to make the path straight and smooth. But until then, would you equip us with joy and certainty and confidence so that we can worship him and honor him and share him with a world that's desperate for him. And I pray this for his glory and his namesake and for the benefit of his people in this life. Yes, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.